Welcome back to this week's episode of Be Boulder. This week, uh, we are lucky enough to be joined by Catherine. Uh, Catherine Doherty, why don't you jump in right away and give us your intro because I will never do it justice um, as we talk about all the things you've accomplished and then dive into overall wellness and how we can think about that and growing our businesses because I know it's a hot topic for you personally right now. Oh my gosh, so much. So hi everybody, Um, I'm Catherine Doherty. So I'm the founder and CEO of Spritz Beverages. So we are a beverage startup uh, located here in the Midwest in Columbus, Ohio. And my background before founder life was actually working in healthcare uh, for Johnson & Johnson. So I have a long time uh, corporate experience around being able to, you know, understand physical wellness within people's lives, um, as well as a lot of personal experience and passion for this area. And even my company in many ways was born out of my love of physical health and well-being. And so just so excited to be able to talk about uh, physical health and the importance of it in a founder's life today. So thank you, Lindsay and the Be Boulder team for having me. Hey, anytime. So why don't we jump right into it? Talk to us about how, I know the story, but tell everyone out there how Spritz was born. Yeah, so I was, it was back in 2016. Um, I am a longtime athlete, love, love staying active. I think for so many people, myself included, um, exercise and some form of movement is, is very much like moving therapy for me. And I had picked up running as a great sport and then started to cross train to balance out the running. And very quickly, I suddenly realized I was just becoming a triathlete. And in 2016, I was actually training for my very first half Ironman. So that's a 70.3 distance. So it's a 1.2 mile swim, and then a 56 mile bike ride, and then a half marathon, and you do them all consecutively. So there's a lot of training for an event like this. And this was my first one. So I was, you know, really nervous, really like dialed into like making sure that I could really try to optimize for the likelihood of me completing this event successfully. And a big part of the training is early morning exercise, because when you're tackling a sport um, of that particular length of endurance, you oftentimes have two a day workouts. And so you've got to get one up in the morning, got to get up early in the morning, get one of them in. And what I started to find was that if I'm getting up at six o'clock in the morning to go do a long run at 7 a.m., um, any kind of red wine hangover is really not going to do great things for that run. No, and not. not at all. <laughs> uh, but I'm also an extremely social person, and I love like I love dinner parties. Um, I love bringing people together, uh, especially in like home environments, to be able to just celebrate and support. And so I was having this kind of point of tension in my life where I loved nothing more than on a Friday night having my girlfriends over. Um, for dinner and you know, originally drinks and being able to just kind of support and, and cheer each other on. But then also Saturday morning was 7 a.m. at Run Club gearing up for our 10-mile training run. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, like I want to have this really great dinner party with my girlfriends, but I also want to feel really good the next morning for my long run. How can I create this like full kind of dinner party experience um, without, you know, taking away um, kind of that, the, the fun and, and kind of um, its specialness of alcohol. And so what I actually did was I, um, I'm a big tea drinker. Um, I love hibiscus tea. It's a beautiful, you know, herbal tea, beautiful shade of red. 
And what I did was I made a kind of extra strong version of it. I mixed it with sparkling water and some different little juices uh-huh. and essentially made like a champagne of tea. And so it looked beautiful on glassware. It was really, really like lightly bubbly, but it had no alcohol, no calories, no sugar, all the things that as triathletes, we really care a lot about when we're thinking about our nutrition and preparing for our exercise. Mm -hmm. And so many of my girlfriends live very similar kind of very active lifestyles. Many of them were triathletes and in training as well. And so we would all like just love to have this instead of wine or, or alcohol um, cause it still felt special. You could still put it in a glass, you could still cheers for it. You know, sure. it really kind of did the experience while still feeling like we could all get up nice and early the next morning and feel, feel our best on our run. So, I mean, my company truly was born out of my desire to mesh the importance of like social support, um, with, you know, physical health and, and diet and, and, um, you know, training. So, I love it's it. The true, the true origin story of my company. Yeah. It's background. So and, and it really is. I mean, like what we put into our bodies ends up being fuel, right? I mean, you and I have, have talked about this uh, many a time, but now, you know, your awareness, I would say, of overall physical health and the impacts that it has, not just on your output of other physical activities, but your output in work, et cetera. I mean, I think that goes back to your J&J days, doesn't it? I mean, oh what was I guess what the credo is, if you will, for J&J. Yes. For those of you who aren't familiar, um, Johnson & Johnson has this amazing document called the J&J Credo. And what it is, is any business has multiple stakeholders, right? That you're trying to balance. You're trying to balance your investors and your customers and your partners and and your employees. You've got all these stakeholders. And there's times where it seems like they're kind of at odds with each other, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you maximize an investor return while still making sure you have a good quality product, right? Um, And what's amazing about the Credo is the uh, leadership team at Johnson & Johnson, I think almost about 100 years ago now actually laid out a prioritization, which they said, first and foremost, the first thing we do is we provide quality products and services to the nurses, to the doctors, to the moms, to the fathers, to the patients, to make sure that we are actually providing them true healthcare, not superficial, not snake oil, good quality healthcare. That's priority number one. That's the number one, hands down, we will not mess with this one. Secondly, we need to make sure our employees have work-life balance, that they are properly compensated, that they have development opportunities to be able to grow themselves in their career if they want to, that they don't feel that they are held back from choosing to have families if that's important to them. Um, Being able to then sort of second big priority is our employees. Third is being a member of our community. What are we doing? Are we paying our fair share of taxes? Are we supporting? Are we being good stewards of our community um, locally? Are we doing good outreach? Are we supporting local nonprofits? You know, we are, corporations are part of community, absolutely. And fourth and last is the investors. And the whole reason why is that if we do these first three things correctly, our investors will get a fair return and a, a strong return because we're running our company with these as our priorities. And I thought it was such a beautiful, brilliant document. Um, it's one of the reasons, frankly, I actually joined Johnson & Johnson was because I read that and I said that that sits with me in a, in a way that I didn't feel I saw at other companies, which was like, you know, on Wall Street, right? We're here to just turn out profits and our and our employees are, are disposable. Um, and 
just ethics and values and morals have always spoken really very, very, very deeply to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and J&J has absolutely done that. And that's why I chose that as my co- the company to join. And so I joined them and their credo, they live it, they breathe it. It is on the wall of every meeting room and it is not a superficial document there. It truly is when you're in like some big question strategic meetings, they will reference it. And they were like, what is the, how does the credo guide us here? Um, and I think any company needs to have those values. I know we're working to develop them at Spritz as well. Um, but J&J teaches, um, you know, uh, their employees might want, my first triathlon was done on the Johnson and Johnson triathlon team. We had J&J uniforms. Um, the CEO, um, of Johnson and Johnson did it. Uh, yeah. I mean, true like leadership from the top and, um, they were, you know, every, every, um, office building either has a gym and if it doesn't have a gym, employees get, I think $500 a year to a gym membership. Um, because they want employees to be healthy. They want them to prioritize their health. The cafeterias always have very healthy options, whether it's a lifestyle or like a vegan or a keto, or if it's, you know, just really making sure there's lots of vegetables and greens. It's a company that for sure has taught me the importance of taking care of myself and my employees yeah. in a physical, emotional, spiritual way. I love that. And it's, it's actually one of the things, I mean, I've talked to you a lot about the, you know, the be bolder kind of thesis where mm-hmm. we're taking care of ourselves in four buckets, right? Physically, mentally, spiritually, yeah. and financially. Lo and behold, we're making better decisions in our everyday life that resonates into our business. And hey, ultimately, the, the end investors, right? They're the ones um, who also are making out too. But I think people try to skip some of the steps and they just say, well, what, what turns it into the investor returns? And so, mm-hmm. you know, um, you and I have been kind of mm-hmm. talking, right? Cause you know, you're at a place in your business where you're doing really well. You have three amazing, um, leaders in the C-suite, all female. And I know that's mm-hmm. incredibly important to you. And, you know, you're kind of saying, Hey, I want to hold on to the culture of my business. And mm-hmm. so, Talk to us a little bit about how you view the traditional venture capital model and how that kind of collides with your business. Absolutely. I, and I think it's so important for anyone listening to also know that, you know, when I talk about these things, it's not like I've had some perfect path. I've made countless mistakes of the very things I'm talking about in my own experiences leading a company. Um, and so this is so much based off of like lessons learned and not like, oh yeah, I nailed it on my first try. (laughs) Um, very much the opposite. Um, so when I've gone through this process, uh, so my company, we did a a pre-seed round to do all of our research and development, take our product to market, to be able to pilot in different classes of trades, um, test different pricing, different promotions to really see, you know, do we have product market fit? Um, and if we do, where is it? Um, so that we can then eventually begin to scale in the, in those areas. Um, and so, you know, coming from a Johnson and Johnson experience where they have the infrastructure and the support for employees to be able to prioritize all of these things. And then moving into a small business where suddenly you're like, well, gosh, I don't have a company cafeteria anymore. And I don't have a company gym and oh gosh, it's me that's doing everything, um, can be a, a rather jarring change. And, Um, For me as well, you know, as I began to kind of start to see like the pressure that can sometimes come with these super, super early stage businesses, um, even if with one that doesn't have traditional venture capital, you know, I was like, wow, this is a very different experience. 
And so then you start to layer on the traditional kind of venture capital thesis of we have to grow at all costs, right? When they say grow at all costs, they mean at all costs. They mean you. <laughs> they, don't, they don't just mean dollars. They yeah. mean people's health. They mean people's time. Um, they want employees working 80 hours a week. They want the founders sleeping in the office. Um, part of it is because they want to just show, like, you know, look at the grit. It's the hu- it's hustle culture, right? Toxic hustle culture. Toxic, yes. Um, and because there's there's good hustle, right? And then there's toxic. Right. Um, and and they take kind of that inherent stress that comes from just trying to do something bold and different and courageous, right? That that natural instinct to break out and knowing that there's going to be risk associated with it. And they take it to the next level because now not only are you, I'm going to use a baseball analogy. Not only are you up to bat, right? Which is already stressful in and of itself because you got a whole stadium of people watching you and you're like, Oh gosh. Um, now the only thing that's going to be acceptable as success is a home run. That's it. Everything else failure. And the pressure that that creates the pressure to, you know, to juice, right. Yeah. To, to do things that are not ethical, that are um, against maybe the values of the company when you first started them, that are contrary to you and your personal well-being, is so high. And as somebody who knows a lot of founders and has and have I've watched them go through this over the past few years as, as they've brought on either first venture capital or later stage growth capital, mm-hmm. um, I've seen it personally from the founder side of just like the pressure yeah. that starts to collapse on them. Um, and then you see it obviously from a market side as well. I think many of us have been following kind of what's been happening in the NASDAQ and, and some questions around some of these really traditionally like great, you know, high, high celebrity, you know, vanity metrics of, you know, this top line, but that when you actually start to look behind the scenes, you know, this valuation, this revenue, you know, whatever, but you start to look behind the scenes and you're like, this is a house of cards. Yes. This is a very large house of cards. Because what they've built these huge companies on are, are, is not sustainable. It's not financially sustainable. A lot of these companies, you know, are just burning capital at a rate that isn't going to actually be able to ever really turn into an actual profitable business. Um, But they're also being built on the backs of employees and founders who are being worked to the bone and are going to collapse just like, you know, the financials are. And I think that that's where, where we're starting to see the results of that, of the pushing too hard and the too far, and that we've, you know, we've cut to bone essentially now. Right. Um, and I think that that where the opportunity lays, I believe the next generation of venture capital is going to be able to learn from this, this past generation and say, okay, lesson learned, you went a little too far this direction. How do we start to reprioritize? How do we look at a company like J&J, right? right? And look at how they are building that company. Because J&J, you can look at those metrics, right? They, they've raised dividends, you know, for like 100 years in a row. And they're one of two companies with a triple A um, bond rating. It's like, right. it's J&J and Microsoft, right? right? Like from a financial metric standpoint, J&J is a gold standard. Yes. And, and this is a company that does not put investors first. They put employees and they put you know, our consumers as the top. And as a result of that, they are the gold standard in like an S&P 500. Right. Um, and so I think a lot can be learned from that. Uh, Super so interesting. Yeah. 
not to jump in here, but you know, one of the things I talk about, like pushing, you know, promoting wellness in, in four different pillars with investors at present. And I say, you know, we've got to focus on this. We've got to think about this. Yeah. You would be surprised how often people push back and go, well, how is that going to work? Like, how is that really true? And, and right. it's that continuation of that toxic culture too. And then right. I just point to companies like a and j and I say, well, the companies that have a wellness program and it's ingrained in their systems and it's ingrained in their culture, they outperform the market yes. constantly on average like 22%, right? So, I mean, you can say, oh, it's not good for the investors, but I mean, the data doesn't lie, right? The folks that actually do take care of it, it is exponentially. And I think so much of this is, you almost go back to the fundamentals here of what are we investing in, right? Are we trying to do you know, the, the, the quick flip, right? Let's, we can use real estate as an example. We bought a house, we kind of slapped some paint on it, but we, we, we pretend that there's not a leak in the roof and that the foundation's not cracked, but we're like, look, it's so pretty. You can sell it, you know, we can buy and sell it here, but that's not built to last. Right. That's going to crumble. And the person who buys it, right? Those later stage investors, those people who got in on the IPO, the, you know, pension funds and everything else that are getting into these late stage um, companies, they're the ones that are, are, they're the buyers, right, of the broken home. Mm -hmm. And far better, I believe, is to build something that's truly going to last. And yes, it's going to probably take a little bit longer. Um, it might take 10 years instead of five years. But instead of having the collapse that we're seeing now, um, which has very broad market implications, not to mention the bodies that were left behind mm -hmm. in order to get to this point, right? Um, you can build something that's actually going to be multi-generational, that's truly going to drive profits that are going to provide distributions that are going to create value um, and, and be great companies. And you just see it. I mean, you can see it left and right. Think of all the companies in the past few years. I mean, there's a couple big headline ones, right? There's the WeWorks, there's the Theranoses, there's a lot of those, right? But there's also a lot of the smaller ones that, you know, IPO'd and they've collapsed. They've lost 97% not, not, lost of shareholder value in the past year and a half because they're not actually performing in the sense of what a business is meant to do. Right. And that's because I think it was just built to be unsustainable. Um, and it's, it's so often because you just, you didn't take care of the people that are building this. Yeah. And it's ingrained in the culture, like you said, to kind of do the thing that's grow at all costs, but it's almost, it's almost shocking, right? What I think a lot of people get tripped up in, in the venture capital space, they get so excited because it's sexy yeah. and you can grow fast and it's, great marketing and PR. And I think a lot of yeah. um, ecosystems have, you know, uh, marketing and, and PR and newspapers that are like, look at this raise, look at this raise. And it's all about raise, 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 raise. Right. I think some people forget about like the basic fundamentals of it, right? When some of these large investors come in and they invest tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, mm -hmm. billion dollars, the only way to get out is to IPO. And like, I promise you, those people are very sophisticated at what they do, and they're going to get out alive plus, and the people in the bodies that are left after that are usually not going to get out alive plus, right? Yes. And and very rarely um, uh, do they, because a lot of times it's built on like, push it up to get it to a place where it looks profitable enough, and then go, and then see cards. Yeah. And it's very wild, and it's, it's unfortunate what we see in like a lot of the culture and the um, you know, just how we're watching this unfold in the marketplace. So, Absolutely. um, 
you know, I know you have been acutely focused on, you know, growing your business and growing it in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've sort of said to yourself, like, hey, right now, like, because it just doesn't make sense, I don't think I'm going to take on venture because A, I don't need it. And B, I don't want it. And so um, if you're able to, are, are you are you able to kind of talk to oh, us? I would love to talk about that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so we we had a, a team meeting. Um, we had our board meeting come together uh, actually about a week ago. And we are now at a point where our company has achieved our first milestone. We feel extremely confident in product market fit, which was the first kind of stage that our company was looking to achieve with our pre-seed capital. Build a product, take it to market, pilot in different classes of trade, see, question, do we have a product that provides value, right? How we nail product market fit. We feel extremely confident in that. So the next stage for my company now is to begin to invest in acquiring customers now, kind of more at a, a true developing of commercializing of the brand, developing new retailer partners here in the Midwest. So that's going to be our next kind of question to answer, which is like, great, we've, we've nailed the product. Awesome. Now, can we start to acquire customers at a larger and faster rate? to actually prove that, yes, we can, in fact, make money doing this. um, And we can begin to replicate what worked in pilot at a larger scale. So knowing that we've now checked the box on first milestone achieved, hurrah, um, we, like all businesses at a stage like mine, are going to require capital to get to the next stage, right? right? But the question becomes, this is now a pretty big pivot point for us, which is what kind of capital do we want? Um, And we basically broke it down into four options. Um, number one, there's the venture capital world, right? Do I want to grow this to 100 million in top line in the next five years and get acquired by Coke? If I want to go down that road, and that's the goal that we're working towards, we're going to need a lot of money, <laughs> a grow at all cost mentality, build massive teams, burn capital, probably stress everybody out, <laughs> raise, 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 right? Grow as fast as humanly possible. Um, second option then would be to take on significantly less capital. Um, and look for essentially a private equity exit uh, in about five years. So instead of the call it half a billion dollar exit on a $100 million top line, can we get to a 25 to $40 million exit on a $10 million top line? Much, much more kind of reasonable, bit of slower pace, but it allows us to truly, I think, build our business the right way. Because instead of us going and say, we have an idea, let's go to the moon. We're saying we have an idea and we pretty good about this. Let's take an incremental step forward and test the next important question before we start raising tons and tons and tons of money. Right. Um, So that was the option we settled on. But we also considered how fast can we get to profitability? Do we want to grow much slower, but do we want to get to break even within a year, for example, Mm -hmm. in which case we have no reliance on outside capital? Um, What does that look like? And then the last option was, of course, Let's also consider if there's always opportunity cost to consider here. What if there's another version of the product that we actually think would be better and from from what we've learned in our product market fit testing? And what if instead of continuing in the current form, we actually say, let's shell that and let's make a different form and go back and now test that based off of what we've learned. Mm-hmm. So we laid out all four options to say, okay, we did this. Where do we want to go next? What kind of company do we want to be? What kind of leaders do we want to be? What kind of lives do we want to have as leaders? Um, we've got a, our COO is a, is a recent mom. Um, our fractional CFO has two children. Um, we're, we're women. Um, and a lot of us have at-home responsibilities. And, you know, ensuring that all of them are not going to be sacrificing 
their lives, you know, with their families. And for me, I have lots of hobbies that I really enjoy and I don't want to give up my life to do. And that's fair. This. That is fair. You know? Right. Like, I, I think venture capital is a beautiful economic development vehicle. Uh, but I also think that we probably take in traditional venture capital, like you said, a little too far. Too like Angela needs to course correct. And, you know, I want to kind of reiterate what something that you just said and kind of harp on it, because I think a lot of people say, oh, well, it's venture capital or it's nothing. And there are, you know, if I map it out, there are 17 different sources of capital. There are countless pathways to get to yeah. a point. You know, it is a matter of like, what is most important to you first and foremost? And like, how do you get there secondarily? Mm -hmm. And I can't stress enough. You've got to take care of yourself and the people around you or all of those end results don't actually matter, particularly if you're not here to enjoy them. Right. So <laughs> I love it. I love that. You can't reach your destiny. You can't experience your greatness if you're not around to do it. Um, the last one of the last projects I worked on at Johnson & Johnson before I moved into a full-time founder role um, was something called Healthy Workforce. And I believe, Lindsay, you and I have talked very briefly mm -hmm. about this. Um, Healthy Workforce was Johnson & Johnson's response to the rising issue of physician and nurse burnout. So I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the term burnout, but it's compassion fatigue, it's loss of empathy, it's, it's exhaustion, right? Um, and in a medical profession, it's only... 20, it's 20 times worse, right? It's only even more severe because not only are you working 80 hours in a stressful environment, you are in an environment where you are personally responsible for the life and death of other humans. Yeah. And you are the one who is responsible to go and tell the people that love those humans, the friends and the family that somebody died or that somebody has cancer or that somebody's not going to make it or that they're terminal. That is their job. That is the, the world that they live in. And medicine is, a, is an example, I think, a, a micro example of similar to what we're seeing in venture capital, where on one hand, traditional medical, the way that um, you know Hopkins developed the residency program and fellowships and whatever, has pushed medicine to an incredible height of scientific development, right? But it is also now literally costing us the lives of physicians, so the, this, this is awful, but the suicide rate of surgeons is higher, higher than the suicide rate of veterans. Mm -hmm. um, so these are people who are highly compensated, extremely educated, um, but they do not have time to take care of themselves. Doctors, nurses, surgeons, you know, they not only have insane amounts of stress, but they work such long hours, right? They're trying to eat a, a quick sandwich in between surgeries. They're in the operating room at 6 a.m. I don't know how you're getting a workout in unless you're getting up at four o'clock. And if you're getting up at four o'clock, you're not getting your eight hours of sleep, no. you know? And it's like, this is the problem because there's not a physical way to get more hours in the day. Mm -hmm. um, and what happened as a result of this, of people being pushed so fast, so far past the brink of health, ironically in healthcare, that you now have people literally choosing to end their lives because yeah, they yeah. cannot handle the stress. And, and Johnson and Johnson, I mean, we started to look at this, not only from like, like that's what kind of, that was the canary in the coal mine, right? We're like, oh my gosh, what is happening here? But you start to look now at some of the data that correlates between the most critical um, indicators of quality in healthcare, right? Complication rates, um, cost 
of procedures, patient satisfaction scores, all of these, these three, it's called the AAA um, in healthcare. All three of these that define high quality healthcare are all directly correlated to the health of the physicians and the nurses in the system. Mm -hmm. So there have been studies that have shown doctors, surgeons, nurses, right, who are underrested, who are who have not exercised, who are not taking care of themselves, who are not engaged in mental and emotional health and therapy to help them cope with the environment that they're in, right? This high stress environment, they are more likely to have patient complications. Hmm. The care that they are providing is directly negatively impacted when you have the surgeon, doctor, nurse not taking care of themselves. And I would argue that the exact same thing is true with a founder. I would if do. you put a founder in a position, right, where they're trying to build a company, which is incredibly stressful because you are literally living in a world of like, I don't know if this is going to work. And you're alone. I don't know if this is going to work. And by the way, most of them don't work, right? Let's all make sure we also recognize that. We, we live in the news cycle of like, so-and-so just raised a billion dollars. It's amazing. That is the minority, right? Most of them don't work. Mm -hmm. So you have this incredibly high stress environment. Then you layer on the fact that so many founders are not taking care of themselves physically, right? They're not eating right because they're eating in between venture capital pitches and they're not exercising because they're working all the time. They're sleeping in their office. They're not seeing in their office. They're not seeing their friends and family. They don't have time for therapy, right? But what it gets layered on here that I think is really interesting about founders that's different from the surgeon population, right? Is the financials. These surgeons are getting paid, right? A lot of founders don't. And when you're in this, and I, this is one experience I can speak to very personally, right? This is a, maybe not a mistake, but like a lesson I learned, which is it's very easy as a founder to say, well, let me take a step back. I'm not going to take care of myself financially because, you know, I got to do right by my employees and I got to do right by my investors. But when you as a founder don't take care of yourself financially, all that happens is your mental energy now starts focusing on, uh-oh, uh-oh, wait, I need, to, I need to pay my mortgage. Oh gosh, what have I done? Um, and your all that really great energy that's supposed to be used to building your great company is going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I just think that um, that's one of the really interesting things about founders that's so different from burnout in other fields is that we have an additional layer of like the financial risk right? Uh, that other some of these other industries don't have. Yeah. But I do, I do think it's so wild when you think about uh, physicians, you know, health and how it directly correlates to patient outcomes. It is it is literally no different Correct. than find, uh, founders' health and how it correlates to investor outcomes. Absolutely. <laughs> There's not a single doubt in no. my head that that is not a fact. That if you have a well-rested, well-exercised, mm -hmm founder who has a therapist mm -hmm. and a team who can talk to them and say, yes, what you're doing is incredibly hard. And that's amazing. And that's normal, by the way. Yeah. And what you're feeling is not you failing and not you being a poor leader and not you, all of the pressures, right, that come, but help normalize it and say, what you're doing is actually really courageous. You're trying to do something that hasn't been done before. And now let's look at it with that attitude of the scientific experiment um, of, we're learning, we're testing, we're trialing, right? We cannot demand perfection um, at these stage of companies. If you can surround founders with that kind of emotional support, as well as the time to be able to take care of themselves mm -hmm. and the financial support to not be worrying about, 
hey, do I need to get a second, maybe third job to enable me to do this? Without a single doubt in my head, I would love to run a study on this. That company will perform better because you have the best of the founder going into the energy of building that company. You have the best of the founder. They're not worried about all these other things. Like this is one of the things I tell people all the time, right? Like when we're wasting micro amounts of energy and thinking about our financial situation or thinking Mm -hmm. about our, you know, we're not feeling our best when we're thinking about, man, I guess I just eat, you know, Cheetos, flaming hot Cheetos with a jalapeno Cheetos. <laughs> at 2 a.m. because I shoved something in my pie hole so I can keep going. And oh, by the way, I'm going to spend two hours tonight. Look, don't get me wrong. There are always going to be a day where you've got to like push it a little bit more. Absolutely. You've like, you've got to, this is not about don't do hard work and don't do hard things. This is about taking care of you so that you can do the hard things because you can't run on a hamster wheel per- perpetually. You just can't do it. You and I both love exercising, right? And this is the importance of recovery periods, of rest periods. Yeah. You cannot make the muscle builder bigger if you keep training it every single day. Exactly. You cannot run faster if you don't run slower occasionally. This is the critical period as a founder, just like any other training process, needs time to recover their mental energy, their physical energy, so that then they're optimized, right? They're refilled to come back to work the next day with the really special sauce that I think a founder hit is in a company, which is this mix of like visionary, I do everything and I'm the lifeblood of this company, which for most early stage companies, right? That's what the founder is. They are the glue that's holding this whole thing together. Right. (laughs) Um, And and they need that. Exactly. Okay. So we're going to wrap it up here soon, but why don't you give uh, founders or people who are thinking about being founders or people who are running a business line for goodness sakes, give, give the folks out there one great piece of advice that you wish you would have known going into your startup adventure that now yeah. you're like, do this thing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm so I'm debating between the, um, you know, put your oxygen mask on first or the, uh, look at this as a science experiment. Um, I think, I think we've hit on the put your oxygen mask on first, right? Yeah. Uh, in this, so I'm actually going to talk more about the science experiment one, which is, you know, coming from a corporate background where you have so much infrastructure, so much support, so much leadership, you know, et cetera, the odds of new products that you're developing failing in the market is pretty low um, because you have such surround sound to help guide and provide guardrails in this process. Coming from that into a true startup, right? You have to have the mindset of, I am testing something. This is a scientific experiment that I am going to run. Because if you go into this and you say, well, I'm going to create a product and it's obviously going to work and it's going to be perfect. And, you know, I'm going to nail it on the first try. um, You are just setting yourself up for failure really fast and a lot of emotional turmoil because, you, that will not happen. It's called an MVP for a reason. It's called a prototype for a reason. This is not the final product. You've right. got to go in and look at it as a test. Um, and what I oftentimes think of actually is like the pharmaceutical model, um, you know, at J&J or, or any big pharma company, which is there are billions of dollars spent on research and development to get one drug to work correctly. And so you got to look at it as, you know what, I've got an idea. I have maybe a molecule or I've got some sort of special strain of something and I'm going to put it in a little Petri dish and we're going to see what happens, you know? And then if that works, then we're going to go maybe put it in some mice. 
you got to think about this through a scientific process of exploration. That my job here is to, what's the first question I want to answer, right? And for my company, the question was, do we have a product that consumers will buy? That's not my mom. My mom will buy anything I make. Um, <laughs> but, but will other people buy this, you know? Um, and what price will they buy that? That's the very, very, very first question I have to answer. And I think any founder that wants to start a company needs to figure out what is their first question and make that their first milestone. What is it going to take for me to get to that, that, that answer? And when I get there, then what do I do? Does the data say you have product market fit? Let's go commercialize. Does the data say we're close, but something's a little bit off and we got to tweak it? Or does the data say we completely missed the mark? And that's okay. Yeah. But like acknowledge that and be like, it didn't work. Let's go figure out something else. Right. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people make the mistake of we didn't hit the mark, but I'm going to keep pushing this stone uphill because that's what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. There's, there's so much cost to that. There is. I, a lot of times I say that that's like a solution in search of a problem. Like people have to totally identify like problem and solution fit there. Right. So they yeah. start saying, well, I have the solution. So clearly, it's going to be the best thing. Well, the market's right. not. It's not. It's yes. Possible. Use yeah. data and look at this as an experiment, right? You have a hypothesis. You're going to go run some tests. You're going to gather your results and you're going to draw a conclusion. Exactly. That's cool. the process. I, I love it. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, you were amazing. So thank you. Thank you. And, <laughs> And uh, for all you listeners out there, as always, don't forget, don't just be bold, be bolder. <laughs>